So uh, allow me to uh, just say thank you for having me. My name is John Plesnick, as Morgan said. It is a joy to be here today. Uh, I have pictures of Morgan from when he was preteen, which is crazy. Uh, and uh, so many memories of uh, time with him through the years and have known Bree for plus 15, I think. It's just incredible uh, seeing God's uh, grace and favor uh, on him, on his ministry, and joyful to be here. We have heard so many things about Summit Bible Church. Our elders pray for you guys sometimes. We, as a church, sometimes we gather uh, together and uh, pray for you as well. And uh, just being here and seeing you is exciting. Hearing that you're going to two services is even more fun. You might feel trepidation, anxiety, worry, complaining, what, however, whatever's going on in your heart. Maybe it's enthusiasm. Uh, it is going to be awesome. Uh, it means everybody can be in church every Sunday. It does change some dynamics, but it's a really good change. Uh, and you will still stay as one church. So just saying that as we went through that change long ago, I remember the, the fears and um, trepidation some even of our elders had, and we look back and we're so thankful we made that change. So excited for y'all uh, to do that. Uh, as you do that, it's funny, as we were thinking, and I was remembering those complaining, I rem was reminded of a uh, story John Newton told uh, some years ago, because he's dead now, uh, but uh, John Newton's the former slave trader, the author of Amazing Grace, and uh, he it was a master storyteller as well. And he told the story of this man who was heading towards New York, riding in a carriage to inherit an estate, and couple, well, what today would be a couple million dollars. And he's about a mile away, and the wheel on his carriage just blows apart, busts. He can't believe it. He, he's supposed to be on his way to the, the best thing ever, and he stopped on the side of the road. They look at it, there's just nothing to be done. And so he gets out, and he starts walking, and complaining, and grumbling, and just can't believe his luck at this. And Newton says, what would you say if you saw this man walking to inherit this great fortune and complaining along the way as he walks? Like, what a fool this man is, because he's not thinking about what he's going to. He's only thinking about his present misfortune. And then, and then Newton turns that story, that analogy, to us, and he, he says the same thing. He says, we can be just as foolish as we move towards eternity with God and complain along the way, right? And so sometimes we can do that about second service. Sometimes we can do that as we drive to church. Not saying I would be guilty of that, but somebody maybe else in this room. Uh, there, there's things about us that just get us and make our hearts grumble and complain. It's the, like one of the secret sins of Christianity that feels like a socially acceptable thing to do is to grumble, to complain, to find little things that it's okay to complain about. And, and Newton rightly says, like, that's not right. Like, we're, we're missing the big picture when we do that. And yet, we do. Like, sometime before the age of seven, you've probably learned the art of complaining. For sure, your children have. Right, It starts with a bit of a whiny voice that they learn to master, uh, and they, we can talk about these things because they're out of the room. Uh, they, they, they've learned to, to master it, and then they begin to, to tweak it and to refine it. 
right? And you hear it come out in the car. He's touching me. He won't give me a cracker. He's breathing my air. Like just the, these things. Then you, you change the pitch. And then as you grow towards adulthood, you learn to add humor or to disguise the complaint, right? You, 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 you know, I'm sorry, honey, I missed the start of the game. It was no one to help me with the dishes. So like you, you just kind of tweak the, tweak the complaint to give it an edge that's different. Do you know, know what I mean? Right, it's a, it's a new record today. I got 26 mosquito bites. Like, you, you just find new ways to explain your complaining. We all have this little bit of Eeyore in us. Like Israel in the wilderness, we just find things to complain about uh, in the midst of our walk. And the longer you walk with God, it seems like the, the more experiences you have in your life, they give you substance to complain and sometimes to question even God's plans and his design for your life. You say, why, why is my parent an angry drunk? Right? Why is my adult child so cruel with the, their words? Maybe you want to be married and you're still single. You want to leave California and you're stuck here because of um, your spouse's job. Maybe it's just because your friends have nicer things than you do. We grow angry with God because his ways don't always seem best to us. And we look and we think, well, why would you let my, my husband have cancer? We need him, right? My, my, my child is in the, the hospital because of what that person did. How is that fair? And we let our feelings justify our actions, our emotions, our thinking. And we justify our sin because it feels like what's happening is beyond what God should ask of us. So if I just ask the simple question and say, are you prone to complaining? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't want no guilt. My hunch is most of you would probably say, yeah, yeah. And, and really what that comes down to most of the time is that we disagree with God about what is best. That, that's the underlying presupposition of a complaint is, this is happening, this is not right. Ergo, God got it wrong. Now we don't say that. That, that would be, we, we know or we're wise enough to say that, that would come across bad. So instead we just complain rather than blame God typically. But it's really common. We don't always see eye to eye with God about life. The decisions he makes don't always seem best to us right? I can't believe they hired that guy to work at our company. Why is this bill coming now? Money's already tight. Who invited us over for dinner, right? Like you, you just come up with these things. I can't believe how cold it is outside. I like that, but many don't. Every time what we're really asking is why did God allow this to happen? Why did he permit this to happen? How these things go just have this moderate, sometimes severe effect on our attitude. And it always is traced back to questioning the wisdom and the will of God. Whether he makes us give something up, whether circumstances beyond our control, how they impact us, all of us means we get unhappy with God for acting according to his will rather than ours. And, and really, the, the truth is, at the core, we can be a lot like Jonah, uh, which is where we're going to look today. 
Uh, Jonah has a heart attitude really similar just to what I've been describing. And so it, it's a fun thing. If, you're, if you've spent much time in the Old Testament, and probably you know Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet who says, uh, here I am, Lord, go and send me, when he sees the holiness of God and a call to reach, the na- reach others, reach with the nations. And uh, he's, he volunteers Jonah. Jonah does the opposite. He, he's not, here I am, send me. He says, God, send someone else. I don't want to go. And I know that Jonah is a kind of a, something you're probably familiar with from maybe VeggieTales or Sunday School, but less so in your Bible. So you've been in Matthew, you're going to go to the left in your Bible. As you turn to the book of Jonah, it's in the Minor Prophets. So I'm just telling you now because it'll give you some time to find it. It's right before Micah, and that probably helps no one. So uh, just in your Bible, turn over to where you might find Jonah. Feel free to use the table of uh, contents. No one's going to judge you. Here, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. Here is a short version of what happened in the first three chapters, summarized for you. Uh, Jonah's this prophet who lives in Galilee, uh, and, and he was uh, near Nazareth, it's kind of northern Israel, and he ministered in a time of prosperity in Israel. He lived uh, and ministered just before Amos, the prophet. Uh, Israel is in a time of peace, things are flourishing, and with ease uh, in life, northern Israel is growing more and more idolatrous. They're not worshiping uh, the God of the Bible at all. They've taken other gods. Uh, justice is gone from the nation. And Jonah's ministry is largely forgotten uh, in Israel. But what we know him for and what the Bible records his ministry is as a prophet to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, who would be the country that would eventually come and conquer and take into captivity Israel. The Assyrians are lifelong enemies of Israel. They were terrifying pretty much to every other nation because they were, they were the inventors of some of the coolest forms of torture to the people who they captured. Uh, so crucifixion, the thing Jesus endured, invented by the Assyrians. Uh, there's art, there's secular uh, histories, All of them actually, uh, even from back then, give testimony to the unusual methods of torture and cruelty that the Assyrians implemented on the people whom they captured. They ruled and won through terror and fear. They were brutal people. I won't go into the methods, but yeah, it kind of is one of those like, if you were watching it in a movie, you would want to turn the movie off because of how graphic it is. And so, when Jonah hears the God's call to go to Nineveh to preach to them, he goes to the ships and heads in the opposite direction, right? He does not want to go to them. He has zero desire to go and to tell them anything about God and to call them to repentance as God desires him to do. So he boards a ship, settles in for a long journey, and as many of you know, the storm blows in once the ship sets sail. It gets so strong, the sailors fear for their lives. They, after tossing all the cargo overboard, they cast lots. Uh, just think of like rolling the dice, that sort of thing. And it eventually identified Jonah as the one who's at fault. I think that was a God-ordained identification there. And though Jonah confesses, they don't actually immediately try to get rid of him. They keep trying to find other ways to save the ship, save the people, until there's no hope. And the the boat itself is almost near breaking up. And so Jonah says, guys, just throw me overboard. It will stop. They are a little shocked, but ready to do anything. So they they pray to Jonah's God, the God of the Bible, and say, like, God, we're not guilty. Please forgive us. He told us to. Off you go. And toss him in. 
Now, from that point, and the, the, sh- the storm immediately calms. They don't know what happens to Jonah. We do because we read the book. It says that a, a large fish came and swallowed him. They have no idea. They're just like, that was weird. He's gone. It worked. <laughs> uh, now, underwater, what happens is this large fish comes and swallows Jonah. Uh, the sailors keep going. Jonah, in, in God's uh, amazing economy, lives three days and three nights inside this fish. I don't know how that works other than the special act of God. And I think what's interesting that you don't usually think about the three days and three nights. What ended his time in the fish? Well, he actually repented and prayed to God. The dude took three days in a fish before he repented, right? Like that, that's a stubborn man. So not like 24 hours would be more than enough for me. He's three days, three nights in the fish. Then he prays, repents, and, and the fish, I think, had been swimming according to God's design because shortly thereafter, it spits him up near dry land. God again comes to Jonah, instructs him, go to Nineveh. This time, Jonah obeys. Okay, this is where we're leading up to in chapter three. He goes east for some days until he arrives in the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. It is one of the largest cities of the time. It is three days walk across it. It's just filled, teeming with people. And as he walks across the city on day one, it's a three-day walk, on day one, this is what he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his message. That's all the scripture records him saying. And the response is utterly unlike anything he's ever seen. If you just, before we get to the response, think of Israel. They've had phenomenal prophets, amazing messages, and they've sat hardened. They've listened and not obeyed. They've heard message after message, sermon after sermon, preaching. They've seen miraculous signs, minimal fruit. Nineveh, on the first day, believes Jonah and repents before God. They believe in God. And people are praying and they're fasting and they're crying out to God. And there's uh, sackcloth and ashes, it says. And the king is in the same boat and he implores all the people to fast and to turn from wickedness and violence just in hope that God might relent from what Jonah says. The response is utterly unlike anything that happens in Israel. And God does just what the king of Nineveh prays for. To the pain and great anger of Jonah, who, who, who can't believe what has happened. Jonah preaches. He has one of the most fruitful ministries of any prophet of the Bible. Nineveh repents, and Jonah is angry about it. He's complaining. He's grumbling. And so this is where we arrive at in chapter 4, right after all of that. Okay? So, so chapter 3 is where the Ninevehs repent, and rather than rejoice, Jonah is full of wrath. And in your Bible, now that you're there, Jonah chapter 4, let's actually just start, say, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. This is the repentance part. When God saw their deeds, that they, tur- that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he didn't do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish 
For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, it's interesting, Jonah here quotes really close to what Exodus 34 says when Moses sees uh, God pass before him. And he says there, uh, the Lord, the Lord God is uh, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abandoning in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sin. And, and Jonah essentially is quoting Exodus 34 and saying, God, I knew you were this way. I knew from the time of Moses forward, you've acted this way. And he's justifying his feelings about what's happened. God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to forgive these people. I knew back in Israel you were going to do this. You are the God of Israel. You are compassionate. These people are not deserving of your compassion. This is why I tried to stop you. This is why I didn't want to do this. And I knew it was wrong, and so I fled. That, that's at the root of what's being said here. God, what you did is not best. Sounds a lot like us. We can think the same way. God, what you did here is not best. We just manifest it with complaints. And so Jonah justifies himself, his actions, his feelings by what happened, and even with Scripture. And this is our starting point in Jonah 4. We have God who's averted his wrath and Jonah who's filled with wrath, just boiling mad. And what I'm hoping you're going to see today as we look at Jonah 4 is you're going to see God's mercy in the midst of Jonah's anger. You're, you're going to see how God motivates us to do better than Jonah. The challenge that he gives us to love and obey him more to, to obey his commandments and his commission, to be more satisfied with him. So, first thing first, how are we like Jonah? How, how are we like Jonah here? Verses 1 to 4, what we see is that Jonah thought he was better, right? Better than who? Better than the Ninevites, maybe even wiser than God. Verses 1 to 4, we see he'd forgotten God's mercy to himself. He had experienced the ultimate mercy from God. He had attempted to employ suicide and been saved from his death in the water by the sovereign intervention of God. God had brought Jonah to repentance through the fish, even over his disobedience and fleeing. God had shown mercy to Jonah by preserving his life in the fish. And it's kind of, it's likely, in fact, <clears throat> And there's many indications that Jonah actually bore the marks of being in the fish for that long a time, uh, right? You, you spend that much time inside the gut of a fish, it's going to leave some marks. Uh, and those marks uh, would likely have actually impacted his ministry to Nineveh. Uh, it would have been evidence of, to the Ninevites of what God had done to him. Archaeologists have uncovered a fair bit of Nineveh. It turns out uh, as that they uncovered stuff, they found sculptures, idols, seals, engravings of Dagon, who is uh, a god that the Ninevites worshipped, who was half man, half fish. Had the head of a man, the tail of a fish. He was the father of uh, Baal. And uh, all of these carvings show that he was worshipped everywhere along the coastline. And word would have made it to Nineveh of this strange man who was spit 
out of a fish onto shore and who bore the marks of being in a fish. I think by this, God was preparing them to hear Jonah's message. And Jonah had experienced God's mercy in a way that he could never forget, right? Guaranteed, you're never going to forget that experience of being in a fish. But when revival breaks out and the Assyrians uh, begin to repent, God's, or Jonah sees a side of God's mercy that he just didn't like. He didn't want to see. The mercy of God, which came to Israel, should not have been extended to Nineveh, to people like that. Said another way, sometimes in, in this circle, is I can see how God saved some of you, but I don't understand how he could ever save that person. That's what's said. Verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. In fact, what it literally says in the Hebrew there is, and it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. That's, that's it. God, Jonah did not like what God was doing. He thought he was better. He didn't think they deserved God's mercy, which sometimes can be us. I don't think that person is like, I'm not going to witness to them. There's no way they have any interest in hearing what that, the Bible says, right? You, they live that lifestyle. That's what's going to happen. We don't say it out loud, but we say it in our head, in our hearts. All right, why, why would that happen to this sweet sister in the church? She loves God. We, we question God's acts. We look upon our maybe our neighbor, our coworker, our children's teacher, and we think of ourselves as superior to them and we forget our own wretchedness. We look down on other parents on the sports team, right? A clerk at a store, maybe a leader in the church, and we subtly think of ourselves as more deserving of God's grace than they are. And we forget that we did nothing to earn God's favor. Nothing, nothing at all. Jonah's hostility shown that he had forgotten that. He was trying to help God when he fled. I knew you'd relent, and so I fled. I knew you'd have compassion, and I tried to prevent it. He didn't like what God was doing, and God's decisions don't feel best. And so, at the very end of uh, verse 4, God begins to confront Jonah. He, he asks him this question. Do you have good reason to be angry? The implied answer, no, 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 you don't at all. The mercy I gave to you is no more deserved than what I gave to them. And when, when you complain, when you're grumbling, one of the best things you can ask is, do I really have good reason to be angry here? Like when I, when I think about myself, my life, the mercies and graces I've experienced, do I have good reason to complain about what this other person has done to them, done to me, or, or is happening? Jonah, though, wasn't ready to hear it. He wasn't ready at all. When God challenges Jonah's viewpoint, what we see the second thing Jonah does is he isolates himself. Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. His response when God questions him in verse 4, his response, verse 5, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Now, maybe Jonah convinced himself in this conversation with God that God was going to change and he was going to wipe out the city. It's possible he went up to get a view of the fireworks. Or he might think, you know what? If I get out of town, 
they're going to quickly forget and revert to their old ways, and then God's going to judge them. Don't know which way that was going, that one of those two was probably his motivation. So whatever the reason, after one day and this massive response in the city, Jonah pulls up stakes and he goes out. And he sits a bit east on a hill on a sand dune where he could have a bit of a, a sight of it. He is separating himself. He is isolating himself. God's intent is that Jonah would have been in the city continuing to preach and, and really to be a prophet to them that he would cultivate, help them cultivate uh, a heart to worship God. Like that he would lead them towards the worship of their creator. His commission was to preach. He was intended to serve as a prophet to Nineveh. And the role of a prophet had both foretelling and forthtelling. It had prophecy, which is foretelling, and it had foretelling. It had preaching as a mark of it. He was supposed to proclaim to his audience also what he already knew to be true of God and their relationship to him. He doesn't do that. Totally doesn't do that. He leaves town. And just as he sought to be separate on the ship where he went away on his own, now that he's free from his obligation to obedience, he can just sit and simmer and boil, you know, with that angst in his heart just waiting for something else to happen. Jonah has been doing all that he could to obey the least that he could. God calls him to preach. He literally has a five-word sermon. That, that's it. In the original, it's five words. And they still repent. So now he's thinking, well, maybe if I leave town, if I can get out, and I don't minister to them and teach them more about the Lord and His holiness, then maybe God will come and destroy them after all. Jonah didn't like what he was happening, so rather than keep going, he separates himself, he isolates himself to become a spectator. And this is honestly one of the most common, Chris would attest, this is one of the most common traits of someone who is in sin and unrepentant is they isolate themselves. They pull themselves out from the community of believers. They remove themselves from others so that they can be alone and escape their accountability and God-given responsibilities. They seek isolation. When you don't like what's happening, you're usually prone to distance, to isolate yourself, to be like Jonah here. I remember in the early years of our church, uh, we were in a middle school auditorium, uh, and it was just a, doors everywhere and just a big seating area, not the comfy luxury you have here. Uh, and uh, there would be, during the singing, a family who would sit outside. And then when all the singing was over, uh, then they would come indoors. And it was kind of weird, because they always, it was like, they're not that late to church, they're just sitting out there for a while, and then they, they would come in. And week after week, they would be there, never a smile, much more like this. They didn't have Thomas as a worship leader. So they, the, the reality is they just didn't like worship. Uh, they, 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 they liked the preaching. They hated the worship, actually, as we talked to them. They, they couldn't stand the music. The, and we had places to grow, but it wasn't a right response uh, their actions, their faces reflected the unhappiness they felt during much of their service. Now, you might hide it better. By the way, they moved to a church where they were happier, and we're very, all very thankful. Uh, not that they're gone, but that they're hopefully worshiping with more joy. You might hide it better, but are, are you prone to sitting on the sidelines, to critiquing, to criticizing, to complaining? 
to isolating yourself, to separating yourself rather than being involved in God's plan. Maybe you used to be active until you got tired or you got hurt or you got angry about something. Then you quit saying yes and you quit engaging in the same way. Jonah's anger just displays our more subtle sins in really high definition for how we tend to act. At our church, uh, there are some people who show up every Sunday who sit in, right now we're in a performing arts with like theater seats, they sit in these super comfy seats, they watch the show, they join the singing, uh, they eat a donut, and they go home with as few a word said to others as possible. I'm sure there's no one like that here, uh, but at our church, we, we have some people like that. And when we choose to isolate ourselves and to spectate, what we're doing is we're acting like Jonah. We're acting just like him. Because you, you see how intentional verse 5 is. It's not just that he leaves the city, but he goes out of it and he makes a shelter for himself to sit under. Like he's planning to be there for a while, to be away from everyone for a while. His heart is self-focused. His prayer in verses 2 and 3 are focused on himself. It uses I or my eight times. Eight times! And now in verse 5, the same self-focus. This shelter is for himself. The shelter is for him. It's for his use. It's to be away from the Ninevites. He's circling the wagon so that he can be alone. And when you think of the response of Nineveh, like what did he have available? He could stay in the stinking palace. Right? Like this, the king would have surely given him a place in the city, even a villager's house outside the city. He doesn't want to be anywhere near any of these people. He wants to be alone. He has no love for Nineveh. He's filled with wrath towards them. He wants to sit by himself and grumble and complain. He thought he was better. He wanted to be separate, and we're far too often like him. So rather than find pleasure in what God is doing in Nineveh and spiritual uh, renewal and revival, uh, we see that Jonah then enjoys physical pleasure more than spiritual good. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely or greatly happy about the plant. Now in the book of Jonah, this is... Truthfully, this is the first thing that Jonah is happy about. This is the, the only thing in the book Jonah is happy about, literally. Is it a new understanding of God? No. Is it a joy in the work God has given him to do? No. Is it joining the fruit of his ministry in Nineveh? No. Uh, it, what, what is he happy about? It, it's like you look at verse 1, all of the spiritual work that happened, Jonah's response, chapter 4, verse 1, it gracefully displeased Jonah. What pleased Jonah is verse 6. This little plant that grew up to be a shade over his head. He was extremely happy about that. What a contrast. What a contrast. Thousands upon thousands of people coming to know Christ, not Christ, but to, to hope in God, to repent of their sins because of his ministry, because, because of God's work in their life, angry. I got a little shade for myself. Now I'm happy. Now this is pretty good. I'm comfortable now, finally. This life has been so hard. And there's just something wrong when we're 
more excited about the new phone, the SUV, the Tesla, the laptop, the vacation, than we are about people coming to know God, about work that he's doing in the church, about things that are happening in your family or in your own heart and life. People would rarely express it this way, but, but you hear it this way instead. Hey, do you want to come to Bible study and maybe, you know, grow more or encourage other people in their walk with God? Life is so busy right now. I'm not sure I have the time to join. I, I can't find that. Hey, do you want to come with our family to the beach, to the zoo? Yeah, I got time. Let's, let's go. Right? Like, that's weird. Can you free up some time to teach a preschool class, to be, to be a, a teacher for our Sunday school and maybe do some basic Bible study? That is not my thing. I'm sorry. Uh, I wish, I hope you find somebody, right? But can you serve as an assistant junior coach for the soccer team? Absolutely. Ready to. Can you play soccer? No, but I'll be there. All right, Betty Lou had surgery. We're hoping you could make a meal for her and her four kids. Things are already kind of busy. I got a lot going on, right? In fact, me and some girls, we're going out for the weekend. Jonah's pleasure is in this little plant that does nothing but provide him shade. And that truth should actually convict us. That too often we find pleasure in things that are just for ourselves and our own comfort rather than the work that God is doing. His happiness here shows us our sin. He looks a lot like us. Now, the last thing we see in the text is in verses 7 and 9, where God's God-ordained circumstances increase Jonah's anger. In other words, what God is doing in his life lead him to more anger. His anger increases as things go downhill. After a day of happiness with the plant, verse 7, but God appointed a worm, which uh, when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Jonah's wrath had begun with Nineveh's repentance, and now as his focus shifts more and more from how bad they are to just how bad his own life is, the little things are starting to, to eat him up, to bother him even more. As God's wrath is turning away, his wrath is increasing. What first took this whole city to arouse his wrath, now the smallest of acts of the death of a plant brings on, and all of them are orchestrated by God. From the turning of the city to the appointing of the plant, which would grow to shade Jonah, to the worm, which would attack the plant, to the wind, which blows, which makes him so hot, um, it is crazy. All of this is there to intensify and bring Jonah to conviction. And his response is he's losing it. He's probably approaching heat stroke under the Sirocco winds. Uh, life hadn't been great for a while, and now things seem horrible. Rather than see Nineveh destroyed, now it feels like God is destroying him. He's the one being punished. And in all likelihood, what would have been the easiest solution? Pack up, go back to the city. They might even have ice. Like, just, just go, you know, go, go away. You, surely they had some water to cool off. But he's angry. And as the wind blows, he's getting hotter and hotter and madder and madder. 
How do you respond when life gets hard? Right? How, how do you respond when nothing seems to go your way? When your boss has it in for you, or when your coworker cheats on you, and a guy uh, cuts you off on the road as you're driving, and you blow a tire, and then you lose a 20, and then your kids are arguing, and your spouse isn't affectionate, and your electrical bills are going higher, and your paycheck feels like it's getting cut, and your cell phone just broke, and your parents are just not doing well, and your dog gets hit, and your phone is smashed, and there's no food in the house, and all of life feels like a country song. How are you doing? Right? Like... How how do you handle that? When you respond to God-ordained circumstances with anger and hostility, you're acting like Jonah. And it's amazing to see how much his anger reveals our common sins. The things that we just don't think that much about and excuse in one another, God doesn't have that view of. Do you see yourself here? Most importantly, do you understand that the point of Jonah is not to leave you feeling guilty? While it should convict us, he doesn't leave us at a point of guilt. The point of chapter 4 is actually to leave us motivated to do better than Jonah, to, to excel him, to do even better, to love God and obey him more, to be more obedient to our commission. Jonah's anger shows how much we're like him, but we also see God's mercy confronting our sin. Look at the conclusion to Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. And then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Verse 11. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you didn't work and which you didn't cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Shouldn't I not, should I not have compassion on Nineveh the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Basically, in the final words of uh, Jonah, God argues from the lesser to the greater. In, in other words, he says, hey, your compassion and love for that little plant that you did nothing for, that vindicates my compassion for this people, who are way more significant and more valuable than this little plant. You cared about a plant which you did nothing for and had for a day, how much more should I care about Nineveh, which has been important to me and which many people live and have lived for so many years? If you cared about this little plant, how can I not be allowed to care about so many people and even the animals? Jonah's anger is emphasizing God's mercy. The fact that Jonah would get so frustrated by this petty thing, well, his anger about how things have gone is a proof and a vindication of how great God's mercy is of how wide God's mercy is. It's a proof that God is utterly unlike man. Just as Romans chapter 9 talks about how God's mercy is not like our mercy, that he uh, gives it to those whom we don't think are deserving. We don't see God's mercy as a limitation, or Romans chapter 9 uh, as a limitation to us, that God only chooses some. Jonah balances our understanding of this and says, God's mercy extends far broader than we would naturally allow it to. He, he's way more merciful than we would ever be. His mercy is greater than ours ever will be. His wisdom is different than ours. His wisdom is greater. His ways are greater. All of his decisions are better than ours. Psalm 135 verse 6 says that whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth and the seas and all the deeps. God hadn't done as Jonah thought best. God resolved to save Nineveh when Jonah wouldn't have. God, Jonah's anger is exalting God's mercy because 
reality is all of us have felt as Jonah does. He just expresses it with more force. He says out loud, what you're doing is not right. Death to me is better than life. Please, Lord, let me die rather than allow this to keep going. Maybe you felt suicidal at times. All of us have gotten sad, silent, angry at how life has gone. We've questioned, we've pouted, we've grown depressed. We naturally feel sometimes that God's ways aren't best. And Jonah reminds us that though we might not like God's ways, his ways are perfect and his mercy is broader. You might be prone to blaming someone else, your kids, your spouse, your boss, your job, your health, your home. Why are they like this? Why is this happening? Jonah's anger in chapter four mirrors how we often think and feel. And it ends with Jonah wanting to die and God not doing what Jonah had thought best. And God using Jonah's anger to communicate how great his mercy is. And the book ends with a lousy ending. Right? This is not a good movie. Right? Like it stops and you're like, wait, where's the last scene? Because it stops with this question. Shouldn't I have compassion? End. Like credits are rolling and you're just left wondering, what happened here? Like why, why is this stopped? What does he do? Right? Why did God end the book this way? The, the answer actually lies in the purpose of the book. The book of Jonah is written to Israel. It's not written to Nineveh. It's not written to Jonah. It's the story of Jonah. It's written to Israel, to the people of God, so that they would understand God's heart and his compassion. That's why every part of the book is a display of Jonah's failure, of God's mercy and his intention to save. And it ends with this question so that Israel and us would be stuck with this question. Who's going to get over themselves? Who's going to go? Who is going to forsake comfort and what they think is best and be willing to trust God and his choices and serve him? Who, really what it asks is, who is going to go in Jonah's place? Who, who is going to do better than Jonah? That's the challenge of Jonah right here. Who is going to do better than Jonah? Who is going to be a faithful minister to these Gentile people to show and tell them about God's ways? The answer was supposed to be Israel. Judah, they they were supposed to go, but they were soon going to be living, and this is a God's plan, book of Jonah written, all of this message, they were soon going to be living among the Assyrians, the Persians, the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Babylonians, and eventually the Romans, and God's heart for Israel was to be missionary. They didn't naturally reach reach the world as a nation, he spreads them out among the nations. God's covenant with Abraham showed him this intention. Uh, Psalm 145 shows that David understood this heart by God for Israel. Solomon's prayer in the inauguration of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, it declares that this is the purpose for which uh, Israel was there to be responsible to reach the nations. But instead, what do they do? They sit happy with their own choice and lot. Then they're thrown into the nations and they mourn their exile, that they're cast among them. They stay separate from the Gentiles. They think of themselves as better than others for their God's chosen people. And so when God asks, who will go and care for this people? Israel's not a yes. 
The answer ultimately becomes Jesus, who comes and lives among the Jews, who ministers among a stiff-necked people, who brings salvation to a Samaritan woman, who tells the gospel to a centurion and heals his servant, who, the one to whom Simeon would say that you will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, the one who would say, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, uh, I must bring them also, the one who dies on the cross to bear not just our wrath, but the wrath of Nineveh and our sin. He's the one who fulfills the lingering question of Jonah. And after his resurrection, he commands his ambassadors, us, to go, right? To, to go and share the gospel, to tell of God's mercy and grace to cities like Nineveh and Los Angeles and Pomona and Fontana and even Crestline, maybe. God ends the book of Jonah the way that he does to ask who will go. And his answer wasn't Israel, but Jesus. And now by, by Christ's commission, the answer is us, you and us, you and me. The book of Jonah confronts us. It comforts us. It calls us to stop our grumbling, to keep moving forward in trust and in faith. And the challenge of Jonah is just this one thing. Can you just stop grumbling and complaining and trust God and go tell others about him? That, that's what Jonah calls us to do, to be faithful people wherever we are, trusting in the highs and lows of life and declaring that God is good through all of it, through all of it, knowing that we can still trust him, that Jesus paid it all on the cross, that when, when he hung on the cross to pay for our sins, that, that that is not just a means of our forgiveness, but it is a declaration to us that we don't bring anything to the table to God. That, that he alone was the offering, the sacrifice acceptable to God, which means not just that we can be saved, but that anybody can be saved. That it doesn't matter what they do, what they've done, how good or how bad they are, that salvation is by means of Christ alone and faith in him. So you have no reason to look down on others. You have no reason to hold grudges, to remember their sins, to pretend that you're better, we just confess our sins. We place all of our hope on Jesus Christ who died on the, sin, on the cross to pay for our sins and reconcile us to the Father. So we don't run away anymore. We don't isolate ourselves. We don't sit and grumble. Instead, we say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the grace which we've experienced. Thank you that we have a great treasure, a pearl of great price that's worth telling others about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief time to look at your word and the great treasure that it is and to be reminded of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Pray that we would be a faithful people who love others, who share the love of Christ to others, who are not known for grumbling, complaining, but instead for a steadfast hope. A hope not in this life, but a hope in the life to come of the of a life with you forever, of an eternity which will be filled with great joy because we know that from your hand are pleasures forever. Lord, help us to be a faithful people who point others to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.